If you have your Bible with you, open it to Revelation chapter 14. We'll be in Revelation chapter 14 this morning. Revelation chapter 14. We're coming to the point in Revelation where you're like, oh, is this ever going to end? Well, it will. And this morning we're going to get a look at it. Last week in chapter 13, we saw two beasts that were described to us. And we talked about how one of those beasts coming up was represented the Antichrist. And the other beast that came up represented the false prophet who, in a sense, will be pointing people towards the Antichrist. Now, what we didn't do last week and what I don't want to do, we haven't done throughout our study of the Revelation, I don't want to then begin to go so far as to speculate who those beasts are. Who could this be? Are they, are they, some people, can, you can get kind of crazy in the speculation. That's where kind of people get off base and they think, some people think, oh, the beast could be the Catholic Church. Some people think, oh, the beast could be Barack Obama. Some people think the beast could be this and it could be that and the prophet. And, you know, I even heard Tom Brady's name mentioned in there at one point. So you can get crazy with that, you know. And, and what we'll find is, is the Bible doesn't tell us who it is. So what we have to be careful of when we study Revelation, and we've warned against it before, if we go too deep and go beyond what the Scripture says and we don't have that foundational overview, we can get ourselves lost in speculation, lost in details, and not really understanding. And things are popping up, and this makes sense, and that makes sense. But the truth is we don't really know a whole lot about the Antichrist. We know a little bit. We know that he'll probably come out of, out of when I say Rome, I mean the Roman, the revived Roman Empire we spoke of last week. So we know, there's, we know a little bit about him, but we're not going to know a whole lot. But this week, this week, instead of seeing these beasts, this week, we're going to see something in contrast to that. In chapter 14, as we get there, we're going to see the Lamb of God standing on Mount Zion with the 144,000 people that we saw in chapter 7. We're going to see two angels or I'm sorry, three angels who have three very different yet very pertinent messages that they're going to be passing on to the world. We're going to see a series of pronouncements and visions that assure us the judgment of the Lord will come to pass. So if you'll join me in chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and this is the Apostle John writing, and behold... A lamb standing on Mount Zion, with, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. Now here's the 144,000. This is where everybody gets confused. But we're not confused because we know who the 144,000 are, don't we? We don't have to speculate. How do we know who they are? Because it told us in chapter 7, right? When we studied chapter 7, the, but chapter 7 was extremely clear when it said the 144,000 or 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel. That tells us exactly who it is. And we know that the reason this tribulation period has come upon the earth is for the two reasons that I've mentioned many times before. One is to judge a Christ-rejecting world, and the other is to bring the Jewish people, the Jews, the Israelites, back into fellowship with God to show them that Jesus Christ really was the Messiah. At this point, John's seeing into the future because we haven't come to the end of the tribulation, but he's looking into the future. And I like when he does this because it shows us how established God's word is. He's not saying, I hope this happens. As he looks into the future, I looked and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion with him 144,000. Now, who's the lamb? Jesus Christ is the lamb. He's always been the lamb. Everywhere in the book of Revelation we've seen. Remember what John the Baptist said? 
Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He said that referring to Jesus. In Revelation chapter 5, we saw the Lamb as though it had been slain and the elders falling down and worshiping. That Lamb being Jesus Christ. In Revelation chapter 6, the Lamb of God was opening the seals of the scroll that no one else was worthy to open. Again in Revelation chapter 6, the world was seeking to hide themselves from what we read was the wrath of the Lamb. In Revelation chapter 7, we read salvation belonged to the Lamb. And again in Revelation chapter 7, we saw a group of martyred saints who were clothed in white and their robes were made white because of the blood of the Lamb. In Revelation chapter 12, those who come to faith during the tribulation overcome the enemy by the blood of the Lamb. We saw that last week. I'm sorry, the week before. In Revelation chapter 13, we saw the Lamb as slain or is crucified before the foundation of the world. So when we come to that term lamb, we can pretty well say it's referring to Jesus Christ. Pretty confidently. We don't have to guess at who that's referring to. Here in verse 1, the lamb is standing in victory on Mount Zion. That's good news for us. I want you to notice something. This is a fulfillment of God's messianic promise to David that he made in the Old Testament. God said his kingdom would come to pass. Jesus on earth proclaimed, my kingdom will come. The kingdom of God is at hand. And here we're going to see John's testifying that I've seen it come to pass. It's going to come to pass in the future. Now, Mount Zion itself holds a significant place in Scripture. It's the place of the Temple Mount. It's the small, or sometimes it's the small hill west of the Temple Mount. And it can also refer to the city of Jerusalem as a whole. It can also refer to the nation of Israel. So as you study the Old Testament, as you read the prophets, if you see Mount Zion, you've got to figure exactly which one is it talking about. Is it talking about Jerusalem? Is it talking about the nation Israel? It can refer to a number of those things. It's usually connected with biblical prophecy. Usually in the Old Testament, you'll see it connected with the biblical prophecy because it speaks of the messianic age with the literal Jerusalem. It's, in other words, it's a literal thing. Literal Israel and literal period of time called the millennial reign that we'll see develop more as we get to the end of the book of Revelation. It's where Jesus will literally rule from when he sets up his throne during the millennial kingdom in Jerusalem. He will rule from Mount Zion inside of Jerusalem. Joel chapter 2 verse 32 says this, It shall come to pass that whoever calls the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance. As the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. The prophet Obadiah and Micah also refer to the deliverance on Mount Zion. So we have the lamb, he's on Mount Zion, and he has with him the 144,000 people. We were introduced to him in Revelation chapter 7. We know who they are. Don't be confused by the people that say that they're one of the 144,000. We know it's going to be the Israelites that come to faith of Christ during the tribulation period. It won't be all of them. They're just the beginning of them. They're the witnesses. We've talked about that. But I want you to notice something. When we met him in chapter 7, it was the beginning. Here we see them in chapter 14, and it's the end. All 144,000 made it. All there's not 139,999. All 144,000 have persevered through the tribulation. And it represents the 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. They made it to the end. That's what God said would happen. They were marked, they were preser preserved, and they were protected, and not a single one was lost. There's not a single accident, not a single oops. 
In the darkest times the world has ever known, the Lord still protected his people. He still protected them. Notice it says they have his father's name written on their foreheads. They have, their fa- they have his father's name, his father's name, whose father's name? The lamb's father. Who's the lamb's father? God. They have God's name written on their foreheads. The seal of God is on the foreheads of the 144,000 followers. The Antichrist followers also had a mark on their foreheads or on their hand, didn't they? Listen, if you're in Christ today, do you know that you're sealed by God? You're sealed. You're going to make it through. You're going to make it in. You don't have to wonder, am I going to make it to heaven? If you've given your life to Christ, it's sealed. You are sealed in Christ. There's no, there's no question to be asked. There's no, well, am I going to be good enough? No, that, that's, not the, that's not the issue. You are sealed. And it doesn't matter what church you go to. It doesn't matter what denomination you belong to. It doesn't. Listen, Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, who were these people? Having his father's name written in their foreheads. Not the B's for Baptists, nor the W's for Wesleyans, nor the E's for the established church. They had their father's name and nobody else's. What a deal of fuss is made on the earth about distinctions. We think such a deal about belonging to this denomination and the other. Why, if you, if you were to go to heaven's gates and ask if they had any Baptists there, the angel would look at you and not answer you. If you were to ask if they had any Wesleyans or members of the established church, he wouldn't say anything. But if you were to ask him whether they had any Christians there, ah, he would say, an abundance of them. They are all one now, all called by one name. The old brand has been obliterated, and now they have not the name of this man or the other. They have the name of God, even their father stamped on their brow. You see, so often we get caught up in the little things that make us separate and the distinctions. But I've said it before, there's not going to be any denominations in heaven. It's either you have the stamp of God on your life or you don't. It's as simple as that. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says, Now he who established us with you in Christ has anointed us in God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So not only are we sealed, we have the Holy Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee that we're fact that we're sealed. So this is a pretty amazing thing. These 144,000 witnesses have come through this tribulation period. This, we're coming, this is a look forward to the end. And along with seeing the Lamb on Mount Zion in verse 1, John's going to hear some very significant sounds. Look at verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the voice of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. So he sees Jesus on Mount Zion. He sees the 144,000. And now he's describing what he's hearing, what he's hearing. He hears a loud voice from heaven like many waters. That's the same description he gave in chapter 1, same description he gave in chapter 4. He talks about like loud thunder. He hears harpists playing. This is nothing new. We've studied this in the past. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, tells us the elders, which are representative of the church, 
there's playing harps. They're playing harps. It says this, Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, fell down before the lamb, each having a harp. Well, what are they singing? They're singing a new song. They're singing a song that hasn't been, something that only they can learn. They're probably singing to the redemption that they've experienced. Why are they singing this new song? Because they have just been through a very difficult situation. They have just been through seven years of literally hell on earth, if you will. It's the worst possible time the earth could ever have, ever, could ever imagine. And now they're in the presence of God. They're in the presence of Jesus, and they are singing a new song. When the Lord brings you or I through a difficult season or a dark time, isn't it common for him to put a new song in our heart? There's a new refreshment that comes through. There's a new thing that only you can sing. Only the people that have gone through it with you can sing. It's something special. If you didn't go through it with me, you can't sing the song. But if, if, if there's a connection and you've gone through what I've gone through and we've gone through it together, then we can sing that song of redemption. We can sing that song of praise to the Lord. But anybody who hasn't gone through it, they don't understand. They might think they do, but they really don't have the same understanding of what I went through or what you went through. Isn't that true of today? That's what we're seeing happen here. This 144,000 have gone through this tribulation period. They're now finally with Christ, and they're singing this new song that nobody else can understand because they haven't been through it. They haven't lived it. Only those that went through it and lived it. And, and that makes perfect sense to me. Well, he goes on to describe the character of these 144,000. And people and religions have gotten really crazy on who these 144,000 people are. But he's going to tell us this is the character. So if someone comes to you and says, hey, I'm, I'm one of the 144,000, you just run down this next couple of verses and say, hey, do you have all these things? Because this is the characteristics of them. John tells us six things about them. Let's look at it. Verse 4. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes, these were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. So this is the, the characteristics. He gives us six things he tells us about them. Number one, they walked in purity. They are not defiled with women. They are not defiled with women. They are virgins. And that word virgin can refer to a man or a woman there. It's not, it doesn't mean they're all men. It could be man or a woman there, either one. They're virgins. And it can literally, it, it can mean, it can literally mean just what we'd expect it to mean. Not, not having a sexual relationship with anybody throughout their life. That's what it could mean. It can also mean, and some people take it to mean, as their life is not defiled with the world. They've stayed pure. I like the literal translation. I think it makes sense to me. Why would John put something in there? He's, he's speaking of what he's seeing, and he's just giving us a good description. So next time someone tells you they're a part of the 144,000, you can walk down this list with them. You know, where do you stand on this? Where do you stand on that? Where do you stand on this? Because if you ever had them knock on your door, and they want to share, maybe it's the Jehovah Witnesses, they think they're the 144,000. The problem is they have more than 144,000 Jehovah Witnesses. They thought they were the 144,000. Now it's just a certain group of the upper echelon of Jehovah Witnesses that are 144,000. And certain groups think that this is them. This is referring to them. But they forget to go back and read chapter 7 because it's so clear on who it is. He spells it out clearly who the 144,000 are in chapter 7. And you can ask them, have you been defiled with a woman? Because my Bible says the 144,000 aren't going to be defiled. They're going to be virgins. And the second thing he says... They were loyal to Jesus. They were loyal to Jesus. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. 
They walked in purity. They were loyal to Jesus. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. The third thing is this group of people are redeemed. They're redeemed. The same way you were redeemed, they're redeemed. They're living a life of redemption. They're living a life of purity. They're living a life of holiness. They're following Christ wherever he goes. They're not, there's not like in the tribulation there's going to be a new formula for redemption. It's belief on Jesus Christ. It's the same thing. A redeemed person will not desire to go back to the impure life and live there. Let me say it again. A redeemed person is not going to have a desire to go back to the impure life and begin living there again. It doesn't mean they won't slip and fall and sin and realize, oh, I blew it. But it means their heart won't be, I want to follow Christ, but I also want to go back to the way I was. A truly redeemed person looks back and goes, I've been redeemed from that life. I don't want to go back to that way of thinking. I don't want to go back to that way of the way I acted. I don't want to go back to talking the way I spoke. I don't want to go back to those things. That's, that's what a redeemed person is. This group of people here, they've been redeemed. They're not interested in going back to the old life. And the fourth thing is they are the first fruits to God and the Lamb. What does that mean? What does first fruits mean? The first fruits was the sacrifice the Jewish people would make. They would take their first fruits, their, their first fruits of the first crop, and they would give it to the Lord. They'd bring it to the temple and they would sacrifice it to the Lord. What does first fruits always tell us? There's more fruit coming, right? So people say, are the 144,000 the only Jews that are going to get saved during the tribulation period? No, they're the first fruits during the tribulation period. The first crop, the first, the first harvest is a smaller harvest. It's the one everybody gets excited about because you've been planting, you've been toiling, you've been waiting for it. Now the first fruit comes out and you say, instead of me consuming that, I'm going to give it to God. Because I recognize that God is the reason the first fruits are on the trees. Had he not brought the rain, had he not done his part, the first fruits wouldn't be there. So this, when it says this 144,000 are the first fruits, what it means is more fruit is going to follow many, 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 many more Jewish people will be saved and come to Christ during this tribulation period. This group is the first fruits of that. It also says there was no deceit found in their mouth. It means they were honest. It means they weren't talking out of both sides of their mouth. It means they were honest people. And number six, they were found without fault before the throne of God. They were found without fault before the throne of God. You say, well, that's impossible. Nobody could live up that way. Aren't, aren't we all found with fault before the throne of God? I mean, if you were to stand before God, would he find fault in you? He wouldn't. He's not looking at you. Do you know the Lord sees you today? From God's perspective, you are seen as holy and blameless right now. Because he has the ability to look into the future. He doesn't look at you today. He looks at what you're going to become. When he's, we're told he chooses not to remember our faults, not to remember our sins. God doesn't look at us and go, wow, that's a mess. Rob, you're a mess. If you don't straighten things up, then I'm going to have to get you out of there. You're going to ruin everything I'm trying to do. That's not it at all. When God looks at you and when he looks at me, he sees us completed in Christ. That's something we can't do with each other. It's something we can't do with ourselves. You see, when we look at ourselves, what do we see? Our faults. We see all the things that we messed up. We see all the areas that we made. When you read the book of Exodus, it talks about all the mistakes the Israelites made. All where every place they fell short, it was their perspective, their recording. When you read the book of Deuteronomy, you don't see the mistakes because it's God's perspective on the nation Israel. You don't see them in the book of Deuteronomy. It's all in Exodus, all their grumbling, all their complaining, all the things they're falling short of. But Deuteronomy has much more of God's perspective, of their God's people. You see, we see our faults, but God can see you 
in the end of your life covered in the blood of Christ. He sees what will become. Isn't that cool? I wish we could see that. I wish we could see each other that way. Wouldn't that be cool if we could see what each other would become like? But we can't. We're limited to our, our opinion and, our, and what we see right in front of us. Now, coming up, John's going to see three angels with three very powerful messages. In this area of scripture that we just covered, the first five verses, we see a look towards the future. We're not at the end of the tribulation period, but we're on our way there. And we see as John looks into the future, he sees it's going to happen. He sees what's coming. And now we're going to see these three angels and take a look at their messages. Look at verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. The first angel's bringing with him a message of salvation. Did you catch it in there? It's a message of salvation. He's going to literally flying in the midst of heaven, flying in the sky, speaking this everlasting gospel. And the word gospel means good news. And he's going to take a look at who it's directed to. To those who dwell on the earth. Every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Sometimes people will say, well, how is it Christ can go back without everybody knowing? Everyone's going to know. Right there. Right there, everyone, the angel's going to fly around the earth, and angels can do that. I, I, I'm not going to be here to see it, I'll be up there, but we'll be able to, you know, on the earth, you will see an angel flying, and the angel will be proclaiming the gospel. Is that so, un, uh, that's so unthinkable? I mean, what happened when Jesus was born? What did the angels proclaim to the shepherds? God uses the angels to proclaim things all the time throughout the scriptures. No, he's not, there's not something new or something, this is all part of, of what he does. So the angel's proclaiming to every tribe every nation, every tongue, and every people. But notice what he's saying. Notice specifically, fear God. Fear God. I think that's something that we need to learn from. Because I think sometimes as Christians, we don't have a healthy fear of the Lord. We, don't, we, we sometimes lack a reverence to God. We sometimes think, ah, he's just the man upstairs. Ah, he's just this. Ah, he's my, he's my big daddy. He's my whatever. You, we, we make references to God. But there needs to be a healthy fear of God in my life, in your life. There needs to be a reverence to God. He's God. He created us. He created everything that we see. Our biggest problem is his smallest problem. Everything that he does, everything that we can, we can the things that, that human beings can barely comprehend, he laughs at. You talk about the smartest man in the world, he can't even figure out the, the basic things to life. But God can figure out everything. Fear God. I think we, we need to learn that. I think we need to meditate on that. Lord, Lord, what does it mean to fear you? It doesn't mean we shudder and we're scared like, a, like a, a dog or a child that's been beaten. But it means we have this healthy reverence, this healthy respect for God and just who he is. It means we have the proper, it means we understand our position before God. He's the creator, I'm the creation. He's God, I'm the servant. We understand that relationship and that brings us into the reverence and the fear of him. And the second thing he says Give glory to God. Give glory to God. You know where our mistake is? Man tends to give glory to man. Man tends to give more glory to man. And we fail to give God the glory that he's due. 
As human beings, we tend to give glory to other human beings for the things that they've accomplished. Think about our sporting world for a minute. We, can, we give glory to the guy who can put the ball through the hoop the best. We give glory to the guy who can kick the ball in the net the best. We give glory to the guy who can take the ball and throw it the fastest. And we give glory to the guy who can hit the ball with the bat. We give glory to, God, to these men in our sporting worlds. We heap them up. We pay them huge amounts of money. And God's going, wait a minute. I can palm the earth. I can throw the earth. You're, 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 this guy's throwing a baseball. This guy's kicking a football. This guy's, th- this guy's throwing a basketball. He's putting a ball through a hoop. God's saying, I can, I can take the earth and spin it at just the right speed. So everybody can live and everybody can grow. And I can make the sun shine in a certain direction. Just so everybody, so the temperature is perfect. If, if the earth was tilted a little bit more to the one degree off, everything, it would blow, mess up our whole ecosystem. God says, I can do that. But in our, in our mind, we tend to give glory to the people in our lives, the people that we see. We heap up athletes. We heap up, you know, depending on if, if, you're, if you come from the, Sometimes we, we heap up people that we think are really smart. They've done great accomplishments. And, and they have in, the, in our realm of human beings, but nothing has compared to what God has done. God has created something from nothing. Nobody can do that. Still hasn't been done. This angel's reminding them on the earth in the midst of this difficult situation. Because times are tough on the earth right now. People are dead. The seas, third of the sea has been turned to blood. Things are, things are going on. You know, we've seen the seven seals. We saw the seven trumpets. This is, this is a difficult time on the earth. The Antichrist is rising up. The political system's being put in place. The religious system's being put in place. And what does the angel say? Give glory to God. Fear God. Give glory to God. Who, who, who do you think's getting glory on, at this time on the earth? The Antichrist is. He's ruling through fear. He's calling them to religion. He's calling to themselves. And the angel says, no. Don't buy into the deception. Give glory to God. Don't let anybody, doesn't mean we can't respect people for their accomplishments, but our glory, our praise, our, our, most, our most passionate praise needs to be reserved for God and what he's done. And look what he says. He says, God's judgment has come. It's time. God's judgment has come. Fear God, give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. It's upon us. And then he calls them to worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Worship, worship is the response of me knowing who God is. If you have a problem with worship, if you say, I just can't get into worshiping God, I just, I don't understand it, then you need to understand more of who he is. Because the more that you understand who he is, the more that you'll understand who you are, and worship is a natural outflowing of that when you realize God is creator. He is everything. And I am just simply a servant, a creation of his. And the Bible tells me I was created for his good pleasure. And the quicker that we can learn that and the faster we can realize that we're created for his good pleasure, the, more, the, the better we will be at serving him and the more beneficial we will be to him because we'll realize our proper role. The greatest worship we can give him is our life. Saying, Lord, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll be obedient. Whatever you want me to do, wherever you want me to go. I'm willing to give up my hopes, give up my dreams for you, and I will do that. That is true worship. You see, because you can fake worship, can't you? You can fake, you can go into a church and fake singing a song, and you can even lift your hands to the Lord like you're really, you can look like you're worshiping. And I've said it before, you can also stand there with your hands in your pockets, like this, never thinking a thing. One could, you might think the one that's next to you with their hands in the air is worshiping, but really it's the one standing to you with their hands in their pocket, because inside their heart, 
They're, they're crying out to God. They're screaming to God. They're worshiping God. It's not an outward appearance. It's an inward appearance. It's something that happens on the inside of us. Worship has to take place in our heart. It's not just standing or assuming a certain position before God. It's the heart that has to be worshiping him. He calls him worship, him who made heaven and earth. You see, we take it all for granted, don't we? We just take it for granted the sun's coming up tomorrow, right? We just, it, it, is this, it used to be a joke. When I, was, when I would testify, in, uh, most of you know I was a police officer before I became a pastor, and you'd go to trials and you'd have to testify to certain things. And the, sometimes the defense attorney would ask you a question, well, how do, you know that's, how do you know that took place or how do you know that really happened? Did you actually see it happen? And you'd say, well, I know the sun came up. I didn't see the sun come up this morning, but I know it did. I mean, there's certain things that happen in life you just know they're going to happen. You just expect them to happen. But those are all under God's control. They're, they're, he's the one that controls those things. Now, the second angel in verse 8, the second angel is going to bring a message of destruction. Notice salvation precedes destruction. Again, God is calling people to himself. He's calling people to be saved. He's giving them more and more time. The second angel comes in verse 8 and says, And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, the great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The second angel tells us the destruction of the final kingdom of the Antichrist. The final kingdom, world kingdom on earth is known as Babylon. And the second angel is declaring it is falling. It's falling. Now, when you see the word Babylon in the Bible, it refers to three things. It can refer sometimes to the literal city of Babylon that existed Back, it started in about the 6th century. It's a, you can, the, the ruins are still there today. It's, it's still there. It's about 59 miles southwest of Baghdad in Iraq. It's not an occupied city. It's still there. So that's, sometimes that's what it's referring to. It can also refer to the religious system that the Antichrist, steps, that, that the Antichrist institutes on the earth. Remember we talked about he's going to call people to worship himself. He's going to establish a one world religion. It can also refer to the government, the one world government that the Antichrist will establish on the earth. So when here, where this angel is declaring Babylon is falling, he's proclaiming everything that the Antichrist has established is going to come crashing down. It's coming crashing down. The religious system, the political system, it's all crashing down. Now, why is it all crashing down? Why is it all falling? Well, he told us right there in the scripture. He says, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of her wrath with fornication. Babylon falls because of this reason. Babylon falls because of sin. Because Babylon, the, 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 this, this system is leading people to sin. It's leading people away from God. It's leading people from God to the Antichrist, when the word Antichrist means in place of or instead of. So it's leading people to the Antichrist instead of God. Sin will always destroy your life. Always. No matter how little it is, it's only a matter of time. If it's left to foster, if it's left to grow, the Bible's clear, sin will lead to death. It will always destroy your life. This system, this economic system, this political system is going to come crashing down because it can't last forever because it's leading people from God to the Antichrist. The third angel comes on the scene. 
And the third angel is going to bring a message of damnation. Look at verse 9. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. They have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. The first angel brought a message of salvation. The second angel brought a message of destruction. The third angel brings a message of damnation. Literally, everyone who has done these things, everyone who's worshipped the beast in his image, everyone who's received the mark of the beast on his hand or his forehead, it says they will drink the wine of wrath of God, which is poured out at half strength, at full strength. The wrath of God will be poured out at full strength, and they will drink. Notice how it's called drink of the wine. If you don't drink with Christ in communion, you will drink with him in wrath. Think about it. As Christians, we celebrate communion. What do we do? We drink the fruit of the vine. Drink this. This is my blood that was shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. If someone doesn't fellowship with Christ while they're alive, this is what's coming. This is what's coming. They'll drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out in full strength. So there's a choice, the wine of communion or the wine of the wrath. But this verse also shows us some things, or some truths, should we say, about hell. Because that's what it's talking about here. He's talking about hell. Salvation came first, then destruction, and then damnation. So the, the way of salvation is known. The way of salvation is clear. The angel made it clear. But here we see these things about hell. And the first thing that I noted is we see that the suffering in hell is real. It's real. It's tormented with fire and with brimstone. Now, I don't know what that really looks like. And I don't really want to find out. But it's pretty clear that it's real. It also shows us that God is not absent from hell. Notice what it says. In the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. God is not absent. God is, God is, it's, it's happening in the presence. It also shows us it will literally last forever. Forever. The smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And the Greek word there, forever and ever, is the strongest word to show continuation of no end. It means it will last forever and ever and ever. It also shows us that there's no rest day or night. There's no rest day or night. So not only will they be in hell, will they see hell, will they have these things happening, God will be visible or potentially there not to comfort them. They will see the choice that they made. It'll be clear. There, there, won't, there won't be, you know, you've heard your friends say, well, I'm going to hell and have a party. No, it won't be a party. It'll be fire and brimstone. It'll be torment. It'll, this, is, this is a great place to take somebody who, who you're trying to witness to. Say, well, where do you want to go? You want salvation in the first angel? You're going to wait for the last angel for damnation. This is what's coming upon the earth. If you reject Christ today or into the tribulation period, this is where you're headed. This is what the, this is what the scripture tells us. And I want you to just note something else. 
Jesus spoke more about hell in the New Testament than he did about heaven. If you go back and you look at it, he's, he talked a lot more about hell, not in an effort to send people there, but in an effort to keep people there from going there. Hell wasn't created for mankind to go to. It was created for the fallen angels to go to. Mankind was given a choice. We have a choice. We can choose to follow Christ. If we choose not to accept that, that's the other, the other alternative. The only place for this is hell. And we'll see more about that when we come to the end of the book of Revelation. But notice in verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. These saints here are the tribulation saints, these people that are coming to Christ. The saints are at rest. Notice, they're at rest compared to what we just previously read, which is fire and brimstone and torment forever and ever and ever. This rest that the saints are enjoying comes through the patient endurance and faithfulness to God and his word. They're those who keep the commandment of God and the faith of Jesus Christ. This will give the saints on the earth at that time great hope. You see, because the word of God will still be available during the tribulation period. Unless it's, unless it's tried to be, it'll, it, with as many copies of the Bible are out there, they're still going to be floating around. I got to believe that if I was on the earth at that time and I came to a faith in Jesus Christ and I'm going to look and I'm going to come to Revelation chapter 14 and I'm going to pick it up and say the saints, the, the, here, in, here is the patience Okay, so I have to be patient. Here are those who keep the commandments. All right, I'm going to keep the commandments. I'm going to keep the faith in Jesus Christ. Then I hear a saying that says, I'm blessed. Blessed are the dead and who die from now on. Do you see how that could be encouraging to somebody who's enduring this tribulation period? That's what he's talking about here. Yes, says the Spirit, and he's speaking to the saints here, not to the world, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. In other words, keep going, keep pressing on, keep following them. It's going to give them great comfort. All of this, and we just covered it rather quickly, and we're going we're to close there. We'll pick up at the rest of the chapter next week. But all of this can be avoided by following Jesus Christ. As you're witnessing to somebody, as you're sharing with your friends and your family, you're not sure what scripture to bring them to, bring them there. Show them what's coming. Because whether they die before the tribulation period or they die before Christ returns, it's the same outcome. You're going to see, and we'll study it more when we get to the end of Revelation, it, you know, hell is what's coming for someone who doesn't have Christ. That should create an urgency in us to go share the gospel with our loved ones. Now, don't be weird about it. Don't make them not want to, oh, I don't want them coming around again. Share it with your life more than with your mouth. Share it with your choices that you make. Share it with your love that you extend, not with your judgment on somebody. Share it in a way where they have to know, because let me share something with you. Don't ever be the one. Someday your friend or your family could say to you, why didn't you ever tell me? Why didn't you ever tell me? Why didn't you tell me about this? I'd rather tell them and have them reject, and I'll still be your friend and your family. But at least I've done my part. Not, not to say I'm trying to get out of anything, not to say I'm trying to make it easier, but I don't want someone to say, why didn't you tell me about this? Share with them. Let them know. These are the choices. This is what's coming. It's a serious choice that somebody has to make because we don't know how long we have, do we? We really don't know how much longer we'll be here. The rapture could happen tonight. Something could, you, could, you, could, you could die tonight unexpectedly. You could get sick in the next week unexpectedly. We don't know what our future holds, but God does. So those people in our lives that don't know Christ, I don't think we can go wrong by sharing. 
Just let them know. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, as we come to this place in scripture, I find it encouraging that you, you, are, you are standing in victory on, the Mount, on Mount Zion. All of your witnesses are with you. All of them. Not one was lost, Lord. Lord, that's encouraging for us that we're not going to be lost either. If we're sealed with you, if our foreheads are sealed with your name, we too will be present in the heavens. Father, would you help us witness to those people in our lives that don't know you? Would you give us a new voice, a new heart, a new uh, passion for sharing you with them? And we do it in a practical way. And Father, as I look at the angels and the three things, salvation is present right alongside of damnation, right alongside of destruction. Again, you haven't failed to make salvation known. But people have failed to accept it. Father, for all of us in here that have friends and family that don't know you, I pray for their salvation. I pray for their lives that are literally at stake. I pray that you'd help us minister to them, help us confront them, help us speak to them in a way not where we're judging or condemning them, where we're sharing our heart out of love for them, out of caring for them. Lord, as we continue on in the book of Revelation, may we continue to know more of who you are and may it create this urgency in us. The time is short. In Jesus' name, amen.